Welcome to series two of Crime Tapes. Now, throughout this series, we're, we're still in a situation where we're dealing with um, the pandemic. And, and as a result of that, we're having to record these podcasts in a, a slightly different way, including um, from home. So the sound quality might not be that that we had in series one. Please do bear with us a little bit on the quality of sound, which throughout the series of episodes you might find is impacted by the circumstances that we're dealing with. Hi, you're listening to Crime Tapes. This podcast is created with Staffordshire University and hosted by the School of Law, Policing and Forensics. And the focus of this, our second season, is on policing and specifically um, the function of policing both in the UK and beyond. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. John Lamb, who's a lecturer in the Institute of Policing. John is an expert on a number of areas of policing, but in particular, one of his research interests is in policing extremism, including political violence, terrorism, but also right-wing and broader domestic extremism. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how the police have been involved variously alongside other authorities in policing extremism but we're also going to look specifically at the threat of right-wing extremism and some of the groups that have emerged and that we're currently concerned about in the UK. John thanks ever so much for joining me today. You're welcome uh, James well I'm glad to be here. And um it's, it's a fascinating area and it's a topic on which I know we share interests. Um, going back, I, I did some research, some ethnography on the English Defence League and that kind of brought me into contact with little bits of, uh, of some of the kind of groups that might be focused on as, as extremist or, or extremism. But I suspect that for listeners... Um, you know, the terminology might be a little bit confusing. I, I know that they kind of probably think of, you know, and, and would recognise some of the concern around policing of, of terror groups. And we kind of think that terror groups would be extreme or, or extremist. But but what do we mean by the term right wing extremism or extremism? Where, where does it come from? And, and what are we talking about in terms of levels of, of crime and the picture at the moment in the UK? So um, the EDL is actually a, a great place to start when talking about this. Uh, so what, what listeners could do immediately is let's think politically for a moment. And we all know and we all should understand, hopefully, that Labour sit on the left. The Tory party sits on the right, but they both represent a political spectrum that slides from the far left, where you might have the Communist Party, through to the far right, where you might have uh, the British National Party. I'm going to use terms throughout this podcast um, that I will uh, define quite clearly now because it's about talking about different elements of that political spectrum. So we have mainstream stream right wing parties, i.e. the conservatives. Yeah. We then have slightly more right wing parties that are still legitimate, like UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party or the Brexit Party. You know, they are political parties. They sit slightly further to the right than the Tories. Yeah. We then get into the far right. Now, the far right is a term I'll use throughout this podcast, and that includes groups that are legitimate political parties, but which start having concerns. Um, so the British National Party, it's a legitimate political party. It stands up people for elections. Um, but I think we can all agree it's a little bit racist or yes. it, it can be. It has in the past had material um, that could be described as nationalistic, if you're being kind. Um, well, the conviction of its leaders for, for racially aggravated offences, for example, and the fact that they've been through the court suggests that, you know, it does certainly skirt the, <laughs> it goes beyond skirting the borders of racism. Yeah, they, they I think, you know, most people accept the Brit British National Party are racists. So, but they're the far right. They're illegitimate. While we might not agree with their views um, or we might, you know, take a stance that says that's not acceptable in my political beliefs, they are a legitimate political party that you can vote for should you want to. Yeah. So that's the far right. We then move into what I call uh, right wing extremism, the XRW, right wing extremist right wing or uh, right wing extremism. Uh, I will say right wing extremism, although it's usually shortened to XRW. 
weird acronym, I know. These are groups that cross out of being legitimate political parties and become variously either protest groups, so the English Defence League, yeah. um, you know, groups that get out on the streets, mobilise supporters, hold demonstrations. Now, they're carrying out legitimate legal political demonstrations. They don't stand people up for elections. And a lot of those demonstrations then result in street violence. So yeah. they're a protest and street based group. We can then push that spectrum even further and we can move into groups like Generation Identity, um, Identity Europe. Um, and then we can push even further and get into groups like National Action, um, Sonic Creek Division, uh, the Order of Nine Angles um, and others. And I'll come back to some of these groups as we chat. Yeah. Um, but just to make it clear to listeners, the right wing are legitimate centre right ish political parties. The far right are political parties that are towards the edge of what we might deem politically acceptable. But the key divide is they stand up people for elections. And then the extreme right wing is everything that comes after that. Right. And it runs the other way as well on the opposite end of oh. the spectrum, doesn't it? So you've got sort of anarcho-communist groups in, in ways like um, the Black Bloc, for example, on the extreme political left, who similarly have no, well, it's not surprising, I suppose, for anarchists, they have no political aspiration, as it were, but do things on the street that are about kind of impacting their agenda onto other people or sort of raising you know, uh, anarchism as a sort of system that people might buy into, for example. So, oh, yeah, to totally. Um, this isn't this idea of a spectrum of parties that ranges from legitimate political positions through to potentially violent, illegitimate positions is not uh, beholden to any one political viewpoint. The left has it, the right have it, um, certain single issue groups have it. So yeah. we could do the environment, you know, on one end, you might have Greenpeace, a legitimate organisation that does protest and does some um, trespass activities and others. But then all the way through to people like um, Insulate Britain, who are blocking roads. And yes. we could keep yeah. going and you get into people who sabotage hunts and you get into people who have attacked animal rights, uh, animal uh, experiment labs and things like it. So don't think, on, yeah. Yeah. don't think this is beholden to anyone group and actually thinking of this spectrum can help anybody sort of understand how legitimate beliefs in any area might become extreme and that's when we then start talking about extremism and that's an that's an interesting thing isn't it because as you say you know behind all of it is in some ways you know legitimate be legitimate beliefs it's perfectly acceptable for example to hold that you know we shouldn't do things that harm animals you know um or that we should try and protect the environment um or, you know, even, for example, um, forms of, of nationalism in politics, you know, it's, it, nationalism is completely acceptable in politics. We've got a, a Scottish national party that's about its own nationhood. Similarly, you know, we forget about Plaid in, in Wales, but they are nationalists. But that can run further into um, a kind of not a, a seeking of a democratic mandate, but but a, one that challenges the state. And I guess that's where the state comes in. It gets concerned when what could be legitimate political causes can attract people who whose means of kind of raising those might generate some degree of concern. Yes. Yeah, so this is this is what we would call the radicalization process. So the idea being is that an individual or a group of individuals holds a set of political views and terrorism is always violence in the uh, aim or in the aid of politics. So it's, terrorism is always political violence. It, it seeks to change things politically. Um, and that's a really important thing. So people hold legitimate political views and then for many, many reasons, and it's debated in, in uh, terrorism studies and radicalization studies, we still don't fully understand radicalizing processes. But for many reasons, one of which might be that they're not getting enough attention for their position or they don't hold enough of the electorate to actually win an election. They become radicalized and start seeking other ways to achieve political power. Now, if this all sounds a little bit abstract, let's remember that communism started exactly this way. You know, communism was written to be a revolutionary political discourse that led to a, a revolution in Russia with acts of terrorism preceding that. The, the um, 
the throwing of grenades at czars and the, you know, the assassination of political members, which then led to a violent revolution in Russia and the establishment of a, polit- of a, of a communist state that lasted 70 odd years. Um, well, I mean, similarly, I, I guess if we go back through history, you know, um, women's suffrage had to adopt forms of, uh, although there were, there were the suffragists that we forget about and then the suffragettes, but the suffragettes were the violent form of action for, for w- women's votes. Similarly, you know, if we think more generally about, you know, everybody's democratic mandate to vote now, you know, um, chartism, for example, had some violent edges to it at times, you know, and, and, and um, violence does tend to come when people perhaps don't feel that politically they can they can a, a, advance but then I, I suppose as well that uh, as you say it's that it, it's an interesting thing because i know not everybody necessarily who looks at terrorism buys into that the definition that you give of uh, uh, of it has to be for a, a political reason i i know in the field and the area i this is where i i find myself in in agreement with you um you, you know I, I think that the purpose is always the the kind of driving purpose is always there to kind of try and sway the hand and lead to some form of action even if it's merely sort of fearful reaction from the the state you know that's the difference but of course it's also the common sort of thing of um you know, in the critical studies of of one man's freedom fighter as another person's terrorist, it's there in definitions, you know, what constitutes. So there are very different viewpoints. But it's interesting, isn't it, that, that particularly in the kind of grounding that we're giving now, it gives you a space and a place really to discuss, I guess, that political underpinning of of, of violent activity. Um. Yes, and the state has a difficult job in uh, managing this. So obviously political views are allowed um, and we have a protected right to political association and political views. Um, We have a curtailed right to the freedom of speech um, in the United Kingdom. Um, We don't have a constitutional right to free speech as per, say, the United States do. Um, And we we have put restrictions on it based around championing violence or uh, terrorism and also protected characteristics. So there are things in England and Wales and Scotland that you can't say because it would break the law. Yes. Incitement to violence, violence, for example. Yeah, it might might, uh, victimise a certain group of the population or it might lead to you inspiring violence amongst others. Um, You know, and those, those laws have been used to great success to prosecute people um, most recently, members of National Action. The group was prescribed, uh, which made membership of it illegal. For the listeners, National Action was a neo-Nazi terrorist organisation um, that explicitly called for the overthrow of the British government um, and the replacement of it with a nationalist socialist state. Um, you know, and the group was prescribed, which made being a member of it illegal. Um, the group carried on existing, and many of its members were successfully prosecuted for both membership but also for hate speech hate speech offenses um and terrorist terror speech offenses like championing the use of violence or encouraging glorifying the use of violence and i guess that that encouragement as well is where also there's something of a gray area because if we go back to the case of national action um i mean it got more serious than that in the case of national action as well didn't it because one of the the members who was eventually charged was actively in the process of a plot to murder a female detective constable and, and an MP and he'd bought um, a, the gladiator sword to do it with he'd told other members of his intent so it was there was a degree of you know preparing for acts of terrorism so I guess that the the, the authorities in a way and this is where we get to in a way there's there's an understanding of those political freedoms that people have to a limited degree but they do have a mandate in some places to keep a kind of watchful eye over what's going on because you know the 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 slide then into you know speech that's illegal but then also actions because um anyway, the name of the national action member was uh, was jack renshaw if I, I remember rightly um who was like say involved in uh, in a plot you know quite an advanced plot it, it seems to uh, take the life of a, a member of parliament um, rosie cooper mp so i guess 
when you think about those things, you, you start to understand why the police would kind of um, keep watch and, and 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 keep tabs. But but we also tend to forget as well, don't we? We think of we hear a lot about kind of community policing, and we we think of the police's role as as to deal with crime. But actually, you know, the historic origins of much of the the police in in England and Wales was also to keep a watch on exactly those sorts of organisations on uh, those groups regarded as a danger to the state. Yeah, so, um, you know, modern policing in England and Wales was established in 1829 with the establishment of the Metropolitan Police Service uh, by Sir Robert Peel. By 1841, we had what would become known as well, the forerunner to Special Branch. And Special Branch was explicitly a political police force designed to keep tabs on, uh, at the time, they called them subversive political groups. Um, Early on, they weren't very successful. They used to hide in cupboards and things and get thrown out of pubs where groups were meeting slash beaten up <laughs> by group members. Um, that evolved over time. And it, its purpose was to keep tabs and to infiltrate and to observe groups that held political views that could cross over into extremism. And this is the key bit for listeners. When we think back to that spectrum of political views that can cross over into extremism, if we focus in on the uh, the right for a moment and we take an individual, a hypothetical individual, let's take a, a, a male in their 30s. Um, I won't name them, but just a hypothetical. Oh, Adam. Oh, OK, so let's take Adam as our hypothetical man in his 30s. Now, Adam feels aggrieved, personally aggrieved because he doesn't feel any political parties represent his views. Um, he doesn't agree with immigration or he thinks immigration is bad for the UK. That's a legitimate political point to hold. Um, but he doesn't feel anybody's doing anything about it. So he's drawn further and further right as he looks for parties that express views he identifies with. Uh, we all do this politically. So he starts maybe with the Conservative Party and their anti-immigration rhetoric and their pushback of votes. And he decides, well, that's great, but I still see immigrants. I still hear stories about immigrants. There are still illegal immigrants gaining entry into the UK. I'm not happy with that. So he moves further to the right and maybe he starts associating with the British Nationalist Party, which has a policy of zero immigration to the UK, if I remember correctly. Um, maybe he decides that that is just talk. But, and so he gets drawn further to the right. And maybe he's now attracted to a group like uh, the For Britain Party, which subscribes to a... Um, they're a legitimate political party, but they do have reference to something called great, great replacement theory or white replacement theory um, on their website. Um, it, it's coded in their website. It's not coded and hidden, but it, it's oblique references to it on their website, which is a conspiracy theory that's common on the extreme right, which is the idea that white individuals, that there is a conspiracy to replace white individuals with either mixed race individuals or immigrants. Um, it is that conspiracy that would lead Anders Breivik in Norway to carry out his attack because he believed so hard, uh, so strongly in that conspiracy theory of great replacement theory um, that he needed to go and shoot, uh, kill, murder uh, the next generation of left wing politicians because he thought that they would be responsible for carrying out the great replacement in Norway. Yeah. So he went and carried out the attack on Utoya Island um, in a to get rid of the future of the Labour Party in Norway so that there would be a there wouldn't be this replacement take place. So if we follow Adam's trajectory, we can see that, you know, we could say he's radicalizing. He doesn't feel his views are represented and he's moving through this spectrum of people um, until he gets to a stage where he's associating with people, listening to materials, reading materials that have started to champion maybe violent action against immigrants. And once you get to that stage, um, you've crossed into the extreme right and now we have a potential terrorist on our hands and that is where the state needs to start stepping in um, and we do have a, uh, I would argue that the country has a duty to then step in and either de-radicalise that individual through things like Channel and the Prevent Scheme or follow criminal charges against the individual should they have been preparing for any uh, attacks. Now, this sounds... Um, I've oversimplified the process a little bit to help listeners understand. Um, there are key things that I maintain about this 
that are debated within terrorism studies and radicalization studies. Firstly, I fall on the side of the debate that says these things do not happen on their own. So individuals going down this process are not radicalizing in their bedrooms on the Internet. Yeah, that might play a part of it. Um, and there is some really good work uh, by Paul Gill and um, apologies if I, I'm going to get his name wrong, but Paul Gill and I believe it's pronounced Rottweiler um, by Paul Gill and, and Rottweiler, which actually says that, you know, conspiracy, that belief in conspiracy theories is a good indicator of violent extremist intentions. So you're more at risk of becoming a terrorist if you believe in conspiracy theories. That's so the Internet and conspiracy theory belief play a part in this radicalizing process. But I would argue there are always others involved. Yeah. So there's always a group of people and it's a socialized process because as people, we make sense of what's acceptable by the people we talk to, yes. by the people we interact with. Um, and this brings it back to uh, Professor Treadwell's original earlier point, which is that um, community policing is one of the best things we can use to fight back against extremism. Um, and so we should forget our ideas that policing of terrorism is always super high tech, Jack Bauer like that reference is probably a bit old nowadays, but I know it's 24. Yeah, absolutely. People get it. Um, yeah. And actually, it's much more the community. And I use the term community loosely. Friends, neighbours, colleagues, co-workers will probably know that Adam has gone down a, a dark path, if we like. Well, we we see. I mean, it's it's an interesting one, and and particularly because you're pulling conspiracy theories there. And I, I mean, I I think I just think straight away, you know, it's worrying for our our, our contemporary world because it does seem to me at the moment that, that you know that there is an extra sort of trade in in conspiracy theories at, at this sort of current moment and i think about for example um radicalization for example and the steps that you were talking about as as part of the sort of pathway towards involvement or membership of the anti-vax movement for example you know and that's not to suggest that there can't be that people can't necessarily hold legitimate viewpoints that are perhaps skeptical to sort towards aspects of what they're told but if you get towards the point where as some in the anti-vax movement are now taking to the streets saying well if you don't listen to us you know when we tell you this there we've got other ways that we can deal with things you know and starting to kind of become more militant actually you know it shows that it can be perfectly ordinary people in many ways when they're in a group of others who share similar views that kind of in a way up the ante more and more and more it's it's almost a kind of you know it's finding that community of, of shared interest and then people become so more the, extreme by reference to those around them perhaps so the academic terms for this is um amplification yeah um the the less the simpler way of putting it is that is the echo chamber now social media plays a role in the echo chamber and what an echo chamber is is we naturally as human beings seek out those who have similar beliefs to us and we tend to seek news and stories from uh sources that resonate with a belief system we've already got so um i am nominally a, a white male in my 30s from a working class background i have a set of cultural beliefs and cultural understandings um from that that mean it's very unlikely i'm gonna ever be radicalized into a uh, Mus uh, a muslim inspired group like isis um i say muslim inspired because these groups don't represent the religion of islam at all but it, you know, it's very unlikely given my white working class Judeo-Christian background. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Yeah. I do, however, share some markers with some of the right wing nationalist groups. And I come from a community where language around those things was common. And so I'm already in that pond, if you like, swimming with these these ideas in that pond. And it wouldn't take very much. Um, I mean, it would because I've spent a long time researching this, um, <laughs> but somebody in my position, it wouldn't take very much uh, if you wanted to, um, in the terms of uh, Panatucci, um, infect them with with negative ideas and start pushing them down that route towards radicalization. The key thing to remember here is that not everybody is going to become violent. Yeah, and that's where the key cutoff point is. It's perfectly OK to have extreme political views in the UK. It, it, it is. We have political freedom. You might not agree with it. Um, I certainly don't agree with it. You know, it's, it's 
probably okay in the UK to have the political view that women shouldn't vote. Right? It's not an acceptable modern stance or that women shouldn't have jobs and they should stay at home with kids. It's not an acceptable modern stance. It's not a political standpoint I would ever accept. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that statement as a political statement. And you could start a political party with the aim of winning votes to whatever. You probably wouldn't do very well, given that you're going to marginalise half the electorate. <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah. <laughs> but, but you could. Um, yeah. You would you would crash and burn, I'm sure, <laughs> and you would lose all your money. Um, but you could. The difference is, is if you say we're going to physically stop women voting and we're going to use violence if we have to to stop women voting, um, yeah. is when you start you, you you've made that distinct cross that break, if you like, from extreme but loosely legitimate political views into what I would call extremism and the risk of terrorism. Um, and I've used the example of women voting because it's not linked to any current group and it's kind of a simple way of understanding it. But then if we t if we took it as a as a current group, for example, we, we see the kind of difficult social position that the police occupy if we were to take, for example, insulate Britain. Because I suspect that many people like me, you know, um, wash out jars and, and tins and then put them in the recycling box. You collect old papers and put them in the recycling bin. You know, we try and drive less. Some of us are cutting down in our forms of consumption because you know gen generally i don't i do believe you know that the human humanity is changing the climate that we ought to try and do something about it he says with a light on behind him you know which he could turn off but you know but genuinely you know i i, I i'm not a climate change denier i think that it's having an impact so you can have some cause you can have some sympathy for example with those that want to highlight it however at the same time if they then line across the m25 when i'm trying to get home you know from london in an evening that is going to cause some frustration uh, it's going to frustrate lots of other motorists those motorists may get out of their cars you may get a confrontation and the police are going to find themselves in the middle of it aren't they kind of trying to keep the peace which is often the role and the function of of the police you know actually kind of maintaining the peace between those groups um, where the allegation is going to come thick and fast at the police that from each side that they're favouring the other. But but ultimately, you know, we can have, you know, many people can have some sympathy, but this, there is going to come a point at which, you know, it's the actual kind of actions of what you're doing that is going to require some form of policing. And we've, we've seen that in, in the past. So the police have been involved, for example, in infiltrating groups, that are regarded as extremist, but it hasn't always gone well for them, has it? No. So you're right about the police being there to maintain the peace. So with Insulate Britain, they, they have to tread a careful line because there is the right to political protest in England and Wales, and there is the right to be obstructive, you know, you, civil disobedience. It's yeah. an established political right that if you feel strongly enough about something, you can protest and your protest can be annoying, basically. Yeah, is the phrase is the non-academic term I would use that in order to gain publicity for your your views, you, you're allowed to protest in ways that are annoying, whether it's a go slow protest or blocking of roads or whatever it might be, a noisy static protest like the EDL like they're allowed. Yeah. But yes, the police have to stop there being violence. They're there to prevent frustrated motorists from from abusing insulate Britain people um, because they want to unblock the road. It's an awkward position to find yourself in. One of the ways the police have traditionally tried to get around this is, as you greatly say, through infiltrating these groups in order to um, disrupt is probably the correct word. So to find out what they might be up to, what they're planning, and then either steer the group away from that or get advanced warning intelligence is going to happen so yeah. that they can then do things to prevent it. However, if we look at the uh, animal rights groups, this has gone particularly badly for the police in the past with individuals like Mark Kennedy, um, who is, I want to say a disgraced Metropolitan Police Officer, um, but I'm, I'm not sure about the title I've used there, but he was a, a, an undercover police officer from the Metropolitan Police who was tasked with infiltrating uh, animal rights groups in the 1990s, um, and who may have been responsible for inciting them, setting fire to a Debenhams, um, and, and may have carried out some rather un savoury acts whilst undercover um, in a way that probably pushed that group into doing things they wouldn't have done otherwise.
Well, there's, there's, there's that allegation, isn't there? There's several police officers involved. I think Kennedy was involved. Um, Bob Lambert as well. Where the, I think it was Lambert where there was the allegation, rather than Kennedy, where there was the allegation that he may have actively crossed the line into criminality. And there's actually, um, there's been debates in the UK just recently about whether acting undercover, for example, those who are informing or, or working for the police as, you know, should be allowed, actually. To, should you ever be able to claim criminal conduct as a means to preventing criminal conduct because one of the things is you know there are no specific defenses in the law that a police officer could use should they do something that's illegal while they're acting undercover as it were so it, it adds that complexity and i think um that the book the paul davis book undercover sort of tells the story of bits of that but what's interesting is that, that one of the things that that can be taken out of that is much of that focused on what was kind of left-wing extremes and we know less don't we about right-wing extremist groups in some ways because there's never been quite the same exposure of whether even the authorities are are monitoring them in the same way and and again you mentioned um some of these groups and that while i appreciate they're on a continuum and they kind of slide um one of them in particular kind of piques interest because um, we, you know, I think a lot of listeners wouldn't have heard of them at all. The the Order of Nine Angles, um, they're about as kind of extreme on the the right as as extremists as as you could get, aren't they? Uh, who who are they, John, and, and and what do they sort of believe in and stand for? So the Order of Nine Angles is a Left hand, they describe themselves as a left-hand path, uh, satanic, occult, Nazi group. So I will say that again because it's quite a lot. A left-hand path, uh, satanic, occult, Nazi group. They are a group that has mixed Satanism, um, although they have a very distinct belief in Satanism, with Nazism um, to create a belief structure that deifies Hitler and the leaders of the National Socialist Party in Germany during the 30s and 40s and the Second World War. Um, They they have been around, believe it or not, since the 1960s. They were founded in Wiltshire in the 1960s in England and Wales. Um, So they're they're persistent. You know, we're talking that they've been around for um, quite a long time now, 70 years. Um, They're persistent. Um, They maintain a small uh, but growing, more recently, membership, both... Um, in England and Wales and across the world. Um, they've got, they've definitely got groups in the US, Australia, uh, Canada, so mostly the English speaking world, but uh, yeah. they are out there and there are quite a lot of these chapters is the term that I would use. They use a satanic term, um, which I can't pronounce, but they, they, they maintain these chapters in other, other areas of the world. Um, and recently they had a US serving army person um, soldier um arrested and tried successfully for membership of 09a um as they're known so, so this isn't this isn't merely a kind of internet thing that doesn't exist that it's real people out there and left-hand satanic nazis yes um so the idea here is that satanism for them is the belief that man will do as he wills Um, So their whole idea is to subvert and undermine um, Western structures. So the society of the Western world through encouraging members um, to be just genuinely nasty. So whether that's carrying out acts of antisocial behavior, um, whether that is ignoring um, all sorts of laws, um, they encourage in their writings and their, their, their materials acts of you know pettiness but also acts of pretty serious criminality like sexual assault rape paedophilia because they don't believe that these things should be curtailed they believe that you know man has a will and man should exercise his will um and that if we do these things that will then lead to uh, the establishment of a national socialist government um and will see the western world fulfill its destiny which ultimately for them is to colonize um the solar system so we're even getting to outer space and nazis in space with them however space nazis they have acknowledged themselves and their leader 
who took a hiatus from the group in the early 2000s, um, has has given several interviews. And he even he has said um, some of this is about put, is about one appealing to certain uh, rebellious individuals. Uh, and that some of it is about confusing outsiders to the group and to distract from the actual core beliefs of the group uh, yes. because people get hung up on the Satanism um, yeah. and they have esco they have they have weird rituals they've got three books that are called the Black Books of Satanism uh, the British Library holds copies of them of three volumes of them they're not accessible to the general public because they are just horrendous as books um, but you know they outline masses and satanic doing bunny ears on the camera for Professor Treadwell to see, you know, satanic <laughs> masses and rituals that are all a little bit weird. Now, I, I mean, I, it's an interesting one to talk about because I, 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 I won't go into too much detail, but the Twitter sphere recently, I, I, uh, I was talking about Satanism, and, and in no way, shape, or form am I going to deny that, that you know there is there is Satanism out there because one of the places in criminology where we've we've encountered um, this, for example, is um, is with and around Satanic ritual abuse, which in in and of itself really is very much a kind of um, conspiracy theory it suggested that you know there was a suggestion in the both the united states and then into the united kingdom in the 1990s and 1980s that there were groups of sort of powerful um satanic individuals collected together in kind of communities that would ritually abuse and and murder children It, it led to reviews um uh, indeed the the government uh, our own government have kind of essentially said this is a widespread conspiracy theory um and it's conspiracy theory that does it in and of itself generate crimes because we've recently seen a, a crime where some people who believed in satanic ritual abuse attempted to abduct a child to save them from it but th- there's no denying that there are real satanists out there that, that there are people who buy into that as a religion and some of those because not all satanists will buy into nazism will they you know i mean there's a whole range of different occult beliefs from kind of paganism and wiccanism through the wiccanism through to uh, but but satanism is a as a part of that and and that form of satanism sort of forms up um with group like the groups like the order of nine angles they're likely to be on the kind of extreme end on from people involved in things like national action but they meet together they form communities and this the state seemingly is probably having some role in watching them uh yes i would assume and it is an assumption but i would assume that the state is um uh, watching so we know from things that have been released publicly that uh, MI5, the security service, is um, dictate is dedicating resources to studying the far right and uh, the extreme right. I'll go back and use the term properly: the extreme right, yeah. and that the extreme right is the largest growing. So it's not the largest threat of terrorist violence in the UK, but it is the largest growing threat. So they have more and more cases uh, week by week and month by month that are coming across their radar as they watch these groups now. That's kind of inevitable if you I'm not encouraging listeners to look at materials from the order of nine angles. But if you were to see any of their materials, it is literally their creed. Their creed is to carry out acts of violence against those that don't fall within traditional neo uh, traditional Nazi belief structures. Um, their, their leader um, even spent a short period as uh, having converted to Islam in an attempt to uh, link extremist islamist groups in with the uh, far right in uh, I mean, to have a war against the jews so this gets really odd really yeah. <laughs> but the key yeah. thing here is if we strip away the fake satanism is that they are a hardcore nazi group of individuals who are championing the use of violence the same way that the third reich did against minorities political dissidents uh, Jewish individuals um, and, and the LGBT community. They are therefore a group that should raise real concerns from a security perspective um, and which needs, uh, you know, oversight by security services and the police. Yeah. 
And and it's it's an interesting one because we recently had the the murder, for example, uh, uh, of uh, Bibi Henry and and Nicole Smallman by um, Daniel Hussein, and and he was very much that was perhaps the first case that listeners could look at where they'd uh, they'd essentially find these mentions of sort of Satanism in the far right. I mean, essentially, um, Daniel Hussein had uh, had uh, essentially written a note that the police found having stabbed Miss Henry and, and Miss Smallman to death um horrific murder where he'd he'd made a a contract with a a demon um and essentially signed it in his own blood and that very much comes out of the that sort of far-right playbook doesn't it there there are aspects of that 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 we know link to some of these groups and and interestingly um you know that that kind of brings to light the the fact that it's about how it then connects with specific individuals as as well and how they then go on to to act and and it's very difficult to know so i i guess a little bit like with with terrorism for example we know that the metropolitan police and the security services are watching an awful lot of offenders who they suspect might have sympathies towards terrorist causes, but they know that only a handful of them are are going to act. The same is at play with extremism on the far right. They know that there's a much bigger footprint, as it were, but, but it's those one or two individuals in amongst it who might act that you want to know who they are, where they are and what they're doing, as it were. Yeah, so the way that I've heard this described by senior police practitioners is looking for a needle in a pile of needles. Yeah. Uh, because ultimately what you're trying to do is you're watching a group of individuals who you're trying to identify who all are sharing these materials and are all sharing uh, violent political belief structures. Um, but there will potentially be the one or two individuals from that group that go on to carry out or prepare for acts. And it's trying to catch those individuals. And it goes back to the the infamous IRA statement from the 80s, which is, you know, we have to be, and by we, I mean the security services and the state have to be lucky all the time. They only have to be lucky the once. Um, Now, the key thing for me here is that there is a risk from the extreme right around violence and terrorism. The groups that are out there, their materials are, are so violent in what they propose that there is an inevitability to violence from it. And as Professor Treble has outlined, we have seen violence in different ways and even in the early 1990s um we had david copeland who carried out terrorist attacks against lgbt yeah. parts yeah. you know so the the right wing in the in england Wales, the extreme right has produced terrorists and probably will produce terrorists in the future what we need to get better at in in, in the united kingdom is differentiating out the extreme right wing so currently we tend to look at the extreme right as a homogenous whole when actually Um, For want of a better term, there are different flavours to uh, the extreme right wing. And I'm still undertaking the research, but currently I'm trying to produce a typology of extreme right wing groups in England and Wales. Because there are extreme right wing groups that are Satanist, like Order of Nine Angles. There are extreme right wing groups that are overly nationalist, you know, and that they're it's all about independence for England or, or whatever the case might be. There are extreme right-wing groups that focus on um, traditional relationships and encourage the idea of, of traditional wives. Uh, there are, you know, extreme right-wing groups that look over into the um, uh, into the environment. You get yeah. environmentally focused neo-Nazi groups, believe it or not. Now, they all have similar views, but yeah. equally, they are fragmented and they disagree with each other and their memberships don't always get on. Um you know, it, if you are a if you are a crusade, if you see yourself as a Christian crusader fighting against immigrant hordes, it's really unlikely that you're going to get on with somebody who signs up to being a Satanist. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you're almost, although you are both on the extreme right, you you have almost diametrically opposed complete views about your place in the world. Absolutely. And we, yeah, we often create this kind of, we often create quite homogenous groups, don't we? But but actually, when you look at ex- all sorts of forms of, of violent extremism, right the way in, through into those sort of prescribed terrorist organisations, they might not get on with one another. So, for example, um, you know, we see lots of evidence with um, the the Islamic State, for example, um, it, when, when they were, when people went to fight with them um, in Syria, people who joined 
joined um, Daesh or Islamic State might well have killed people who were fighting for Al Qaeda or uh, one of the other Islamist groups. You know, they're, they're not necessarily all sharing beliefs or on the same side. And similarly, you know, you, you get other Islamist groups that might have very different agendas, you know, Hezbollah or all sorts of, of different places that, but we can kind of talk about quite a, a universal term like Islamist extremism or um, far right extremism kind of tends to paper over some of those differences at times. And, it, and, and like you say, it's important to understand the differences and the divisions as well. Uh, when when the police are, are, are doing that, I guess it, it's it's also partly about assessing where the greater threats come from as well. Because as you say, it, it, while all of these individuals might be involved in, um, they might all be described as as needles in needles, as it were, and all can you know all can harm. One or two of them can do really kind of high levels of harm. We're, we're just it of your own views john where do you think where do you think the real threat and the high level of harm is likely to come from from xrw the extreme right wing at the moment so that is a really hard prediction to make um uh, for me the for me i need to put that into some context before i can answer the question so for me the greatest risk to the united kingdom for terrorism is still groups associated with Northern Ireland because terrorism is iterative. So yeah. you get better at terrorism over time, either via surviving, i.e. not dying, literally not dying, yeah. or not being arrested and incapacitated by the state. Yes. Groups associated with Northern Ireland have the longest experience. So yeah. they would be, the, and they also potentially have the greatest access to materials to carry out attacks. So they would be the greatest threat. The greatest risk, they have the capability, whether they use it or not, I would argue they have the highest potential capability. Second to that would be Islamist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, they have a large following base. Uh, we have had terrorist attacks from them. They have a large number of people who have been to Syria and other places and gained combat experience. So they would be the second. The third would then be various extreme right-wing groups. Um, yeah. And clearly, some groups posed a bigger risk. So National Action, System Resistant Network, um, and the Sonnen Creek Division, to name three. And we yeah. can name those three because they've been prescribed, because the state thought you, you pose enough of a threat of violence. We're going to prescribe you to give us the tools to lock your members up to keep everybody else safe, basically. Yeah. Um, the extreme right wing has the least amount of experience. Although groups like the Order of Nine Angels have been around since the 60s, they have predominantly been um, either esoteric campaigning groups in the background, kind of carrying out their own little rituals and not really impacting on anybody that we know of, um, or they have been street protest groups. So like the EDL or uh, Combat 18 back in the day. Yes, yeah. So they've been, they've been much more street level groups. However, we have seen individuals come off the back of that that have carried out extreme acts of terrorist violence. Copeland being the, the most obvious one. Um, the individual who murdered the MP Joe Cox would come out of that that milieu, if you like, that, that melting pot of extreme right-wing beliefs as well. Um, so there is the, the threat and the risk from that group. But I think it's... I do think it's inevitable there will be an attack from somebody on the extreme right at some point in the near future. And the near future, I would say, is in the next five years uh, because we've seen enough of the threat matrix go up. So, there, you know, more and more people falling down these rabbit holes, the, yeah. the state having to intervene more and more through channel and prevent to de-radicalise individuals. We've seen more and more prosecutions for preparing of acts and um, membership of prescribed groups. For well, me, it's therefore an inevitability. Yeah. But I would say the risk of that, the harm of those attacks is going to be lesser because they don't have the knowledge and experience and the potential access to materials. Yeah, so it, it's likely to be more kind of rudimentary. And it's interesting, two things I want to pick up out of what you said. I mean, number one, it's interesting in a way because you mentioned Thomas Mayer and the murder of Joe Cox, but we've already seen it happen. And then we quite often kind of forget and move on. But but actually that that 
you know, in some ways that it was a very kind of high profile targeting in that way. So low sophistication, but high profile targeting. And again, similarly, you, you, you I do wonder if, if that's the threat. But the other thing I thought, which was fascinating about what you said, and it's one that I always like to kind of uh, go back to and, and, and talk about is we forget the threat from uh, from Republicanism in, in Northern Ireland. And few people have heard of the case of uh, Kieran Maxwell, for example, but uh, a Royal Royal Marine commando um, who was a member of the provisional IRA who was convicted of, of essentially maintaining weapon stashes, bombs and, and jailed for 18 years, you know, which also suggests a degree of sophistication in ability to kind of infil- back infiltrate the state, as it were, by by Republican groups. And of course, a lot of the tactics the Islamists took, they took from those Republican groups. And I think the the lesson we often forget from history around terrorism, and it's one I always like to kind of repeat, is that, um, you know, America prior to um, 9-11 had obviously experienced um, another attack on the World Trade Center, which had focused it very much on um, uh, not on the threat of Islamism, but of domestic extremism. and, uh, you know, it was it, it, and therefore the real the the big attack came out of the blue, as it were. And I think that there's there's a danger, isn't there, in that we've had so many kind of conversations about, you know, the, the new threats that, that we simply forget that there are some groups that have been around for a long time that still present a really significant threat. So, yeah, so the desire to uh, back infiltrate the state, as you said, is an interesting one. Um so if we go back to the Order of Nine Angles, they have uh, a thing they call interests. And so this is where a member uh, and their, their leader has done it. He, he said he resigned from the group and he went and he spent some time as a, as a Muslim. And then he came back to the group. They call these interests. Um, the idea here is that they will go and try to infiltrate and subvert other groups from the inside. Now, the Order of Nine Angles is, is a group that in particular... Um, has a, a method like you know states that this is something that they do however the, the extreme right wing more genuinely more generally um, has an ability to appeal uh, I would argue to members of security services police the military um, and others because of those cultural drivers that they share um, and there is a desire amongst these groups across that spectrum of different groups I mentioned and across the different ideologies they have to recruit, uh, you know, active and ex-military members. So National Action, for example, the Outlaw Group, specifically aimed its recruitment at university campuses and the military. And the reason being is, is they were of the opinion that graduates and serving or ex-military individuals would be the best mixture in order to create a successful terrorist group um, to bring skills and knowledge to the group. Um, and we, we do need to be careful around the radicalization of members of the military in particular. And we have seen two convictions in the UK of serving military personnel for membership of extreme right-wing groups. Um, So that is something that would raise concern with me going forwards around the extreme right-wing, is because of some of the narratives and some of the cultural drivers are similar. They're not the same, but they're similar. I think there are aspects of the military that are at much higher risk of falling into some of these beliefs um, than, than maybe the general population are. And obviously, if they if they if any of these groups were successfully in recruiting a large number of either serving or ex-military, they would gain significant amounts of knowledge, skills and behaviours that would clearly be of use to terrorists. Yeah. So, I mean, a threat to kind of continually guard against for the authorities and and that that sits alongside i guess a, a concern with you know um, the threat that could be presented trying to monitor or watch groups particularly as well if i mean this it's one it is an interesting thing isn't it we, we simply don't know um an understandably secret understandable secrecy we don't know if the state is infiltrating groups on the extreme right in the same way that it was with the extreme left but i think you know we can 
we can speculate that it's likely to be happening. Um, and again, it's one of those things that I think when I was talking, for example, about um, the myth of, of satanic ritual abuse, for example, you know, groups that were are drawn towards sort of um, right wing politics and and paganistic rituals and and so on might already actually be be watched the state might know what they're doing and it would probably know quite quickly if they were for example murdering children you know um so they, they, i think you know there, there can be a kind of a, a assurance in that but then there is that danger i suppose as well for of of in some ways people who are responsible for, for gate as gatekeepers and watchers sort of beginning to either be pulled in or, or facilitating things. And again, that's one of the examples we, we do see. We certainly see that allegation made with the infiltration of the extreme left, for example, because I guess, and, and you rightly said this earlier on, people matter as well. And if you were surrounding yourself with people who share those views all the time and, you know, believe in those things, even if you didn't initially, it must be quite difficult to maintain a, a distance and a distinction, as it were. Uh, yes, and this is the risk that infiltrators or or even agents, um, so an agent would be somebody who isn't a police officer, who is managed by a police officer because they're already within a group. Yeah. Um, these are the risks that infiltrators and agents run all the time, which is something called going native, which is the the loss of self to the undercover persona, if you like, and the 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 adoption of the group's views and beliefs um, because you're immersed in that realm. Um, you know, I've I've never worked for the police. Um, I have never worked undercover. I can't imagine what that is what that is like, and it must be incredibly difficult to maintain the distance from these things. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, I mean, it also it does suggest, uh, I think, and, and this is an interesting one, that the power those ideas can have over over individuals as well, um, which, again, is perhaps one of the reasons to take them seriously, because, again, we can we can kind of see this as all a bit, you know, um, far fetched out there in the reaches of fantasy. You know, no one's going to be on the Internet and in chat rooms and and signal groups and, and whatsapp you know uh, moving from being a perfectly normal person to doing something quite extreme are they but actually we do see that sometimes it is perfectly normal people that are drawn into that you know we we should be careful about overplaying the distinction between us and them or also underplaying their own agency as part of that in, and knowing what they're doing because i think one of the things that often gets me is it's almost a sort of that radicalization is something that kind of happens or exists from outside of the individual who has no part in any of it. it, it it's just something, it, it's almost brainwashing, but it's much more complex than that, perhaps. You know, there's, there's it's a complex interplay of, of the individual, the group, the online, the offline. Um, but the, the things that are doing it are very real and, and out there. Um, it's a it's a fascinating di discussion, John, um, which takes me to the final thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is obviously there are there are contradictory views uh, in criminology, for example, when it comes to mechanisms like channel and prevent. And certainly as someone who's kind of been around um, criminology and it, it, into some of the sort of policing discussions and debates and these touch on things like education right the way through you know there, there's there's been quite a lot that's been written about um schemes like channel and prevent that talk about them as quite kind of negative processes that, that are that, that are quite critical of them it sounds like you're more broadly sort of suggesting that that you're supportive of them or you, you see a value would that be a fair place to put you at uh, yes, it would. I am la loosely supportive of ideas around prevent and channel. Um, it's sensible for a state to have a mechanism through which we can prevent is part of the United Kingdom's contest strategy, which is the United Kingdom's um, counterterrorism strategy. Um, it's made up of different strands and prevent is the strand that seeks to prevent people from becoming or supporting terrorists. That is a fundamentally sensible thing to do from my perspective. Uh, the same way that we have crime prevention uh, things in place to stop people stealing, to stop people assaulting each other. You know, we should have a crime prevention model in place to try and stop people becoming or supporting terrorism. Now, I understand it can be a de delicate topic 
because ultimately you're talking about people's beliefs and their political beliefs. Prevent is very clear that it's only concerned with beliefs that start championing the use of violence. Mm. Uh, and I think as long as we stick to the line that all views, whilst we might not agree with them, are acceptable up to the point you say hurt somebody for it, then we're okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't think any rational, reasonable individual can say that that's something that there's something wrong there um, with that. Off the back of that, I'm also loosely supportive of channel. Now, I know less about channel than I do prevent, so I'm more hesitant here. But surely if you've got a mechanism through which people you're aiming to prevent people becoming terrorists, you are going to come across individuals who are three quarters of the way up the spectrum I spoke about at the start of the podcast. So mm -hmm. our hypothetical Adam has gone from the Conservative Party to UKIP to the For Britain Party to generation, uh, generation identity to, the BN, um, to something else. Um, and somebody has said to, you know, somebody has uh, given some intelligence to the police that says, you know, he's getting into some really dark stuff here. I'm really concerned that he's looking at yeah. neo-Nazi, Hitlerite, satanic materials, and he's starting to say fairly nasty things, you know. Surely you should have a friend group or, yeah. Surely you should have a mechanism at that point which enables you to challenge those views. And to and that is my understanding is that is what channel is. Channel is designed to channel people away from these views and to kind of expose them and say to them, look, this isn't normal. You, you've kind of gone off track here. Um, the problem that prevent and channel face is it's impossible to measure a negative. So what we can speculate all day long, what would the outcomes have been if we've not had over 10 years of channel and prevent? Um, but we can never know. Um, we equally, we don't know how many people have been referred to channel because um, that, that could be in the thousands. And if it is, and those people have successfully come off the back of it without being criminalised and without carrying out attacks and now have renounced their, their potentially violent views, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and so I find sometimes I find criticism of Prevent and Channel a little bit myopic and a little bit short sighted. Um, are there issues with it? Totally. There always is going to be any issues with uh, the state getting involved in people's personal belief systems and, and ideas um, and it is going to go wrong sometimes and it is going to step into things it shouldn't but ultimately I believe there should be a mechanism through which we can take people away from extremist views and and help them to to come back to maybe not the centre but you know uh, not championing violence basically. Yeah, I, I, again, I guess it's that um, it's that kind of complexity whenever you get humans making human judgments about what's required and the risk that someone has. So some of the kind of negative stories that, are, uh, although some of these are also sort of patently untrue when you look into the detail of what actually happened about how people get referred and, and so on, sort of paint it as a kind of overzealous, overreactive state, kind of stigmatising people and pulling them in too early and then kind of um, the, the danger that that has for for civil liberties and i guess you know it's it's understandable that people would have those concerns but the other side of it it, it, it is that you know and and if we do go back and and do look at um as i say some of the examples uh, you know and there's going to be nothing um more stigmatizing for daniel hussein for example than you know the fact that he's now going to spend a significant part of the rest of his lifetime in in custody you know so uh, as you say if possible to identify people and, and move them away one of the things we've long known and it's for it's for appealing principle of, of policing isn't it that prevention is better than cure you know it, it actually if you can if you can get upstream and stop the people entering the river and drowning it's better doing that than than pull out the bodies further down further down the river somewhere so i can similarly understand and, and see where that comes from um i think it's a fascinating topic though and and, and one that um i can imagine we're, we're going to kind of be revisiting um time and time again because like, like i say it does seem that you know the growth of of conspiracy theories and and uh, the way information comes through for people at the moment and you know the, the darker side of of misinformation the the internet and the online world and, and so on uh, it does seem that you know the 
it, it's interesting that you mentioned conspiracy theories because I think you know we see more and more and more of those emerging at the contemporary moment. Um, I really appreciate you uh, you joining us and and talking to us about it. And I, I hope at some point we'll uh, it's it's a topic we'll revisit again. So thank you, um, Dr. John Lamb um, from the Institute of Policing here at Staffordshire University. Um, thank you for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. And. If you're interested in any of these topics uh, at all, you might want to uh, check out Staffordshire University and some of the courses that it offers. It not only offers the routeways into policing, but courses in um, terrorism, criminology, um, international relations, where exactly the sorts of topics that we've been talking about today are, are the things that we look at. Um, find us on our website, www staffs.ac.uk if you want to uh, listen to any of the other crime tapes podcasts and there's quite a number now you might want to check out buzzsprout or the usual podcast outlets um, we're available on almost all of them um, and do listen to other ep episodes where topics like conspiracy theories are, are covered in more detail um all that it remains for me to do now is to thank you for listening um, and see you next time on crime tapes <laughs>